0: Welcome to The backdrop, Untold Stories in Golf. I'm your host and co-founder of New Club Golf Society, Matt Considine. Today, we venture halfway around the globe to welcome a very special guest, Greg Ramsey. Best known for his efforts turning a remote dunesland in North Tasmania into a top 10 golf destination in the world called Barn Boogle Dunes. Greg grew up on Australia's oldest golf course, Ratho Farm, that later became what he calls his soul project. Greg is one of the most interesting multi-dimensional characters you'll meet in this game. He currently consults with small whiskey distillers and golf operators around the globe while progressing on a new golf development on the southern coast of his home, Tasmania, that I guarantee will tickle your golf sensibilities when you hear what he is working on. Greg's name has come up on this pod quite a bit over the last few years, and having him on for this discussion was confirmation for me that the golf world is filled with kindred spirits, and Greg is perhaps one of its most spirited. Speaking of spirits... The Golf Society is headed to the sand dunes of central Wisconsin. Yes, Sand Valley and Lasonia are the host venues for this July's Summer Medal. And I'm very excited to announce that Journeyman Distillery is our official partner for the Summer Medal. Journeyman founders Bill and Joanna Welter are creating a 100-year brand for the ages. They are a first-generation business trailblazing the way for the next 100% family-owned and operated, they pride themselves on reinventing historic structures and revitalizing their communities. Journeyman combines a passion for world-class craft spirits, the greatest game of golf, and authentic Midwestern hospitality, creating a destination experience with a full-service, family-friendly restaurant, award-winning event spaces, distillery tours, and tastings, plus the 30,000 square foot putting green Welter's Folly that contributes to a full immersion of making and creating at Journeyman. We have our club championship dinner there every single year and that experience just can't be beat. So I really recommend if you're in Chicago and looking for a road trip this summer, a destination would be Journeyman. I can't recommend stopping there enough. If you can't get there in person, you can check out their full portfolio of spirits over at journeymandistillery.com. Now, without further ado, on to the show. Greg Ramsey, welcome to The Bag Drop.
1: Thank you very much, Matt.
0: It's uh, a delight to be with you. We share some mutual friends. It's actually the reason we're chatting today Uh, and Mm -hmm. some former guests of this uh, very prestigious (laughs) podcast, Um, Craig and and Bill Welter. Now you knew yeah. those guys. You knew those guys before they were, you know, um, uh, respectable businessmen and and captains of industry. Uh, when did you meet those guys, and where were you?
1: Uh, so in the year two thousand, we we were all in Scotland, basically. So Bill got a job. <clears throat> excuse me. So I'd been over to. Um, Scotland when I was 18 Um, I grew up on Australia's oldest golf course which was on our family farm in the highlands of Tasmania and so I was trying to figure out how to turn this sort of all these ruinous old buildings and this fairly basic um but charming little golf course you know into from golf history into golf tourism and went to St Andrews and that's where I just um you know I mean, you know it, I had a year there before university after school and then a year there after university um, and you know really both years there was British Open year so 95 I was there as an 18 year old and then again in 2000 so Bill um, got a job in the old course hotel where I was a, uh, well, I had the grand title of a whiskey masterclass barman. And, and then, um, and Bill got a job in there. And then through meeting Bill, he he had a big place. So I ended up um, shacking in with him. And, um, and then we just started playing a lot of golf together and, and his mate, Craig, who he had been, Um, I don't think they played university golf together. I think they played high school golf teams together and, and Craig was in Edinburgh studying at Harriet Watt university and uh, studying the Latin, the masters in golf course architecture as part of their landscape um, architecture course. So we just went and played golf at a lot of weird and wacky places like, like Fraserborough and Cruden Bay and North Berwick and, and um, you know, all all those crazy little courses that you find all around the East coast of Scotland. uh,
0: what, what is it about that time over there? We talk an absurd amount about Scotland on this podcast. Uh, it was mm-hmm. in, you know Scotland and Ireland for me. first, my experience was very similar to yours. It started with Ireland, and then later I said, i gotta I gotta go back. I gotta be see see what the the deal is over in Scotland. Um, yeah, similar deal and and probably a little bit better in terms of golf. But yeah. what, what do you think there's so many people like Bill, like Craig, like yourself, that spent, you know in in the big scheme of life, uh, a small amount of time in, in yeah. of your life in, in Scotland, but it, it kind of changed the course of everything that you do, right? What, what do you think it is about the, the experience over there that has set so many people on their path?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think people do it as a bit of a pilgrimage, you know, Tom Doak did it, Um, I'm pretty sure Gil Hance did it, Um, there's countless of people, you know, in America um, who've done that as part of their, maybe their college golfing experience, they've, you know, done an exchange to St Andrews Uni which is the, you know, it's such such an exciting time as an 18 or 21 year old kid, because it's a university town, even more so than it's a golf town, so there's just that energy anyway, Um, but I think the way that golf, you know, you can see all the layers of it is very much a grassroots game. Um, if, you, if you connect with the history of it, you can see how the game originally, you know, juniors only learned or beginners of golf used to learn with chipping and putting and putting courses. You know, there were not driving ranges. You didn't learn the game by hitting big bombs with a nine degree driver. You know, you actually learn how to work your hands through the ball and work how to release the ball and get a bit of bump and run. And, you know, I still believe that that is by far the best way to actually just learn. You, you learn the swing from putting backwards to driving, not the modern way, which is you just go to a driving range and then you never actually learn how to chip and putt so um so yeah there's something about the fabric of the game in scotland if you're willing i don't think every visitor to scotland and Ireland gets what you know me and bill and craig and tom doke and and everyone else got but it's if you're willing to try and you know in, invest yourself and surround yourself with the you know going to some of these pubs in these golf towns that aren't buzzy golf towns like kill Spindy and you know, outside Dundee, not, not just Carnoustie, but you know, you got a Panmure and um, Craig's, uh, Scott's Craig, and these great ta- golf courses that have guys drinking beers around and pints of, you know, pints of, um, they call it heavy, you know, the Scottish heavy, and you just talk the golf language and you there's something about the way it is ingrained in the community there that is a little bit different to anywhere else I've been in the world. And it's, and it's a beautiful thing. Um, but I'm not also pretending that every visitor to Scotland suddenly has a Michael Bamberger, you know, shivers, irons experience. Um, you've got to spend it. You've got to really, you know, go, you got to go deep to do that.
0: Yeah. I, I, when I, when people don't have their Bamberger or shivers, irons experience, I just ask, well, where were you? what, what, what went wrong?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, I think if they play a good mix, of course, and they make sure they go off the beaten track and play just two or three of those, yeah. Unheralded golf courses, and they'll see uh, just like Tom's always said you know, there's you find three or four amazing golf holes out of 18. There might be some horrors and there might be a lot of mediocre, but you'll actually, on most of those links courses, just by the nature of the landform and the nature of how primitive golf was back then, you will find some extraordinarily simple yet intricate greens complexes or some golf shots. That's like a half wedge that you just go, wow. You know, I just that little knoll or that little bump or ridge there completely makes this hole. And I'm going to draw a sketch of this and I'm going to cheat and copy that somewhere, you know, little things like that.
0: That's great. Mm-hmm. Now back to our friends, uh, Bill and, and Craig, um, you guys are in your early twenties running around playing golf in a fun college town. Are there any stories that they might be a little nervous? Uh, you could tell us about them, our ambassador members on this podcast.
1: Oh, just, I remember like, you know, Bill and I were like, like, I went over there as an 18 year old and I had a lot of my firsts, you know, I was a a late, late beginner, but an Australian accent in Scotland in 1995 when the two biggest rating television shows were, were Australian soap operas. It was a, it was a nice thing. So, so we had a lot of fun. And then when I went back after university, um, you know, Bill and I were just trying to, you know, figure out um, the ways of the world and, uh, you know, with the – with and there's actually – in that year, it changed me. There's quite a lot more American exchange students in St Andrews and um, and I don't think Bill was able to enjoy the novelty of using that American accent as we went out on the town each night um, trying to romance the ladies. So, no, that was good fun. Uh, we, I mean, we just met so many great people who literally took us all over Scotland having a great time at golf. And Bill, you know, got into whiskey and – and now I'm not sure if you've been out to journeyman distillery, but that is an incredible achievement. You know, what, what, what he's done out there with that as a, as a distillery, but also as a destination and as a community, you know, really big entrepreneurial community, you know, part of the landscape there. So um, no, it was, and and Bill and I have luckily gone back quite a lot of times. Like we, we leased and developed Kings Kingsbarns distillery, which is on, just near the 14th green of where I used to caddy at Kings Kingsbarns in the year it opened, and Bill's been back on a lot of golf tours and, and whiskey tours, so it's nice to have a legitimate connection to keep, you know, keep that relationship with Scotland and Scottish Links Golf so strong.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and Journeyman is the spot. They are, they are the official partner of our summer medal at Sand Valley this year. So ah, good. We hang with Bill and, and the folks at Journeyman quite a bit. They also do our Club Championship dinner, which is. One of my favorite nights of the year. Oh, great. Okay. Excellent. Did you, did you help him lay out the plans for that putting green for Welter's Folly? Did you have any hand in that?
1: No not so much the putting green but um, early on I mean I was privileged that Bill was asked me to help look at a bunch of different properties and a bunch I mean the legislation in America is just so crazy around distilling and whether you can serve or pour or drink or taste and so we had to figure out quite a few different parts because when Bill came out to Tasmania and was helping us at a distillery here that we were building I said look go and find a big old fire station or a beautiful old hall or something in downtown Chicago and let's just build a Great craft whiskey distillery, smack bang in Chicago, but you know it all just got so hard that um it's ended up where it is, and it's um it's a now it's such a great golf destination because there's so much good golf around there, um as well as Bill's epic you know Himalayas putting green. So, yeah. um no, I didn't have any role in the design of it, but um Bill briefed me on it pretty early, uh, where you know it was just a logical place to do it, and like everything, calling it Welter's folly, like no one Bill no one really thought it would become the magnet you know the attraction that it has become but it's a beautiful way to sip whiskey cocktails with your kids to walk out and putt 18 holes and they just
0: started a putting league too which is a riot that uh, i'm hoping to get my family down there for that great um, well that's that's shift to uh, your part of the world so i wanted to start with ratho farm because mm-hmm. in our email communication back and forth i think you referred to it as your soul project um, yeah which I, I always go for that, right? Because those are the things that, you know, we all need to make a, a dollar to get by in the world. But the sole, the sole projects are what fill us up inside. At least that's my belief. Yeah. So, so what, what is it about Rathville Farm that made it your, your sole project?
1: Well, growing up there, so my great-grandfather purchased the property in the 1930s. And he wasn't a golfer, but he was a really, um, he was a Scotsman from near Dundee. Um, And he did pretty well in Australia with a bunch of ventures and he bought Ratho for its, for his personal interest with its fishing. So it's got, you know, really world-class trout fishing, but like the Reed family who took golf to, you know, to Tasmania and to Australia, Um, He just let the golf club keep playing out on the paddocks and, you know, it's right around the homestead. And, you know, it was only back then a winter game. So that was only a few months of the year and it was, uh, uh, it wasn't at all intrusive on the golf on the, sorry, on the farming. So he kept the golf course, you know, playing. And then my grandmother, again, you know, it was more of a community service, to be honest. We're in a town where the football ground, the tennis courts, the swimming pool, the golf course, all originally were on just adjoining farms outside of the village. And, you know, that was just the way that golf began all over the world. It's like if someone had a bit of spare land that was convenient to get to, that's where they would start talking to the farmer or the landowner or so on and and so it was as much a community service as, you know, running the church fate on the weekends was just letting the golf course roll through. So, so, um, but when I, you know, I really got the golf bug kind of late. I was 15. I, um, I've been playing around. I just saw it as a novelty at the back, back over the back fence of our house that, you know, here's the golf club, but I only really started taking up seriously when I was about 15 and then I got bit pretty hard. So that by the time I was 17 and end of school, and I was just thinking, God, what do I, you know, what am I interested in? Well, I know I love golf and I know I love history and I know I love this property and, you know, the the stories that abound here. So, you know, why don't I go to Scotland and see what I can do and see what I can learn from it? Because having a gap year in Australia is a very big thing. A lot of people have a year off between school and university. So um, I went straight to made a beeline for St. Andrews. Um, I got so lucky I was getting off the plane in Edinburgh airport and there's Peter Thompson. So five times British open winner. And he, I knew that he had was designing a new course in St. Andrews, the first new course in St. Andrews since, you know, the new course in 1892 or something. So I walked up and introduced myself because I knew he had referenced the um, Ratho farm in some of his writings. So I just cold introduced myself at Australian accent at the end of a long flight. He was delirious enough to, to talk with me. And then, you know, he told me about some of his Tasmanian heroes, some of his golfing heroes from Tasmania when he was a young golfer. So we struck up a rapport and then he, you know, I said, Oh, if you're heading to St. Andrews, you know, do you mind if I jump in? So he ended up driving me up to St. Andrews. So we had a great chat all the way, and then he, he repaid me with that kindness to um, come down and open the Restored Holes at Ratho Farm with um, with his Tasmanian golfing hero, whose name was Peter Tugood, and Peter had won the Eisenhower Cup. Um, Bobby Jones, you know, sought him out. Um, he won the uh, leading amateur in the British Open. He was a finalist in the British amateur, great Tasmanian golfer that Peter idolised. So those two gentlemen played together in their 70s to open um, the restored holes at uh, at Ratho Farm, and um, and Peter also, um, you know, one of my favorite memories was in about week ten or twelve of us opening Barmbugle. Peter came down and we played around Barn and, and and I played with him and his wife, and and it was just fantastic. So
0: yeah, some pretty good luck for an eighteen year old stepping off the plane in in uh, Edinburgh.
1: Is- yeah, I think. I think I think there's good luck and good misfortune for everyone in their life, but something that I've you know that was good luck to see Peter at the airport. But um, one thing I've never been afraid of, even like when I cold called Mike Kaiser or when I lobbied Mike really hard on Sand Valley, no risk at all in just opening it. Something that I realize looking back that has generally held me in good stead that, you know, and there's a lot of risk in investing. There's a lot of risk in, um, you know, putting a lot of time into things, but actually just asking a question, there's no risk and all there is, is upside. So I've never been afraid to just keep asking and hopefully learning a bit along the way.
0: I want to dig, I want to ask into that because I've seen that as your trend in this, that you're not afraid to put yourself out there and and you're not afraid to to go to the people that a a lot of us might think, they don't have time for me. You know, who am I? I can't, I can't call my guy. I can't do, do these things. Do you have that person in your head? Or is it, is it just the guy that's winning out is, is loud enough that you don't even hear the, that other voice?
1: um no no i do i'm acutely aware of the absurdity of some i mean some people never know some people never know the absurd doors and i've opened or questions that i've asked people i mean we're trying i'm you know i'm formulating so many crazy things like getting you know calling you know um getting taylor swift down for our bicentenary and calling it taylor's tasmania you know so just yeah, and look, they they all fall in a heap, but um, it it's you just keep trying because that's actually also where I've got my biggest breakthroughs was people who do give you a minute and give you a bit of time, and then if you can make a good impression upon them, then um, you know you've, you you're somewhere. So that's um. I think that's something, I and I'm a big, I'm very passionate about youth entrepreneurship because I don't think if I, in my state with my wife and kids and a mortgage, I don't know if you can be quite so brave and go and start things like Bamboogle when you're married in your 30s or 40s. But when you're 20, you got nothing to lose, so go out and do crazy stuff.
0: Yeah, mm. yeah. You got it. Uh, one of my favorite quotes that that helped me personally was, um, "Inspiration has an expiration, and you need uh-huh. you need to act." And you definitely yes. Have it had a track record of acting in your life, uh, rounding out on Ratho farm. Can you, so, so I, I looked at some of the videos online. It, it looks to me like a place that I would love to take my wife on an anniversary. You know, there's uh-huh. a lot of, uh, call it vintage or rustic type of feel and you uh-huh. know, you're, you're out there. Uh, and it, and it checks the golf box for me, but what, yeah, what, 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 how do you describe the whole experience at Ratho?
1: Um, so what you've said is very, very good. I mean, we, we definitely want it more to be just than just the golf course. We want that hospitality, the architecture, the experience, you know, of the history and the buildings to very much align with, you know, the golf course, which is that, you know, it's very raw. It's very real. It's very authentic. Um, but the good thing is people who like where Raffo as a golf destination is really smashing it right now is that, you know, sort of just recreational golfers who don't care much for architecture are coming out off the course having a great time there's a lot of short par 4s there's a lot of reachable fives there's um some brutally hard long threes that used to be short fours with hickories so they can score well it's wide and forgiving but there's you know we got Brian Schneider in to build the new restored six greens that they lost before World War II. So Brian, as you know, you know, he builds really multi-dimensional segmented greens complexes that just look like they've been there forever. So that's why we use Brian, you know, Neil Crafter and Paul Mogford, the architects, the consulting architects there, you know, really invested in the history of the game and and this delicate balance that we've had of like, how do we keep this authentic? How do we keep it honoring the, you know, the, the elements of this course that, you know, was first being played in the 1850s, but also make it appealing and modern to a retail golfer who doesn't give a toss about the history of the game. And they probably don't know anything about architecture. So it's like, how do we, you know, how do we get volume through but all, without actually just bastardizing it? So it's been a very interesting process and I look at you know I was very close to Lewis Keller who built Oakhurst links or sorry restored Oakhurst links with Sam Sneed, who's now sold it to White Sulfur sorry to um, the Greenbrier and sadly he's since passed but you know seeing what Lewis had done at Oakhurst links which is America's oldest golf course there in West Virginia um, and you know the Greenbrier next door what I've since learned is the history means very little and actually you know, it, it, it's the fun and the sense of the charm that means everything. So that's what we've really tried to, you know, exaggerate.
0: That's interesting. The, uh, you know, retail golfer or the, the folks that aren't that interested in architecture that can still have a good time uh-huh. find it important. I, I find myself kind of struggle sometimes where I have, whether it's friends or, or just a, a new foursome who isn't into architecture the way I am. do do you find it per your personal responsibility to, you know, introduce it to them to, uh, help them understand it a little bit or, or does it matter? Does it not matter? Does it, is it just that they're there and that's all that counts?
1: Um, I think it is. I think I enjoy enlightening people gently because, you know, some people don't care and you don't want to shove stuff down people's throat. Um, But if I can see it pricks an interest and I'm playing a course and there's a really clever slant to a green or there's a a back pin position or, you know, that we're not playing today or, you know, that there's some genius in a central hazard down the middle of a fairway um, that in different wind conditions will completely reward a different side of the fairway. You know, I, I have a bit of fun admiring that and I'm not trying to preach or teach them anything I'm just saying I, what I love about this hole is you know that point so and you can pretty quickly see whether they're going to go oh that's interesting or just like their eyes glaze over and they couldn't give a toss so but thankfully most of the people I play golf with have a sensibility to golf design and golf architecture but I think the the thing that was really interesting to me with 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 for Farm was. The old holes were so wide open and kind of fun, and sorry, wide open and kind of plain. That the holes we restored, we had a bit of a license to be a little bit more creative. And what I learned from playing Mammoth Dunes against Sand Valley is, I think, golf architects have got to find a way to make the, you know, most pin positions and most players be able to have a lot of fun. And it's fine to have a really tough tournament pin or a really tough place to keep great golf honest but generally I think mammoth dunes has been a real wake-up call for how to make golf forgiving and fun and versus make it kind of sneaky and penal you know Sand Valley by you know Ben and Bill is a brilliant golf course but it does it catches you up it tricks you up quite a bit you know I hit a lot of good shots that fell off side slopes into bunkers and a lot of good bunker shots. And I, I play off, you know, I've generally played off six to 10 and and that's where I'm at at the moment. I think I'm off 11. And so I've never been a great golfer, but, um, you know, when you but you expect to, I don't know, get around okay. And I just found a Sand Valley that as as brilliant as it is, it was so firm. And I found Tara Eady a bit the same, that you can hit a lot of good shots time after time, find their way into hazard. And then you, it's hard to get out of the hazard sometimes without it coming back to your feet even though you've, again, hit a good shot, 30 metres up a slope, and then you can play Mammoth Dunes and it's helping you around and it's kicking back into centres and it's missing by 15 metres and kicking back into the middle of the green. And as um, an old pro we used to have working for us said, you know, the golfer tricks himself up enough with a poor swing or a a lazy three-part. Like, you don't need to beat them up through the golf course on the way around. And I just think there's such a fine balance of making it fun, making it, you know i don't believe in the word fair i just think that's a nonsense but it should at least be fun (laughs) you know and if it's if something's completely unfair i'm against that you know time after time on a golf hole so yeah yeah yeah. uh
0: i've just had a very similar experience with mammoth dunes i mean we we take groups up every single year for a variety of different events and um Mm -hmm. the only critique i've ever heard from mammoth dunes from one of our our members is that for the scratch golfer it's not hard enough Mm -hmm. which if if that's like the only thing you could say about a place, I mean, golf isn't going to suffer if the scratch golfer, you know, it's it's not hard on them. There's a few of them as it is, so I I, I agree with you, and uh, I don't even know if that statement's always true.
1: I, I I would I actually wonder what that guy or girl puts on their scorecard, like you know what I mean? Like it's a fairly egotistical thing to say. So what I'd be interested to do is say, okay, you know, Matt considine's going to have. Let David McClay Kidd set that place up for three or better markers. And let's see. I bet you David McClay Kidd knows how to make that course brutally hard. And, in fact, maybe that's part of the genius that you got people out there thinking, oh, this is a lot easier than San Valley. I, I reckon you can set it up as hard, if not harder than Sam Valley, because – of some of the, you know, the greens complexes, you can put pins in some really, really tricky positions. So anyway, I think you could make money out of that, Matt run the David McClay kid challenge where he gets to set it up as hard as he can.
0: What are you doing in July? Come on out. We're going to, I'm going to send it. I'll I'll pull your tactic and I'll reach out to him. See if he'll do that for us. Um, I wanted to, we got so many other things to talk about. So I got to jump around a little bit. Um, we talked about you know growing up at the oldest course in the world. I, uh, I one last question on Ratho Farm. So you you brought in the gentleman to to redo the the, uh, the course. You know now we're living in the day and age where everyone kind of knows the architects to some degree, uh-huh. right? We, celebrity shows, yeah. celebrity architects. Yeah, yeah. I read. Uh, I don't know if it was your website or something else that you know it was just Scottish immigrants. Did any of them have a name? The guys that built the course in the eighteen fifties.
1: So, no, the, well, Alexander Reid II, he came back from living in Scotland and, you know, there's dispute among the historians whether his father, who was from Leith, where the first laws of the game were drawn up and the first golf societies were formed, you know, whether he was golfing. But the first written, you know, references to golf was pre, you know, it was the, before the 1860s that they were golfing there. So in the 1850s that... You know, so Alexander Reed II and golf back then, Matt, you've got to realize every time you went out and played, they played to a different hole. It was a, a rabbit scrape. I mean, in Scotland, they used a goal sack, seagull feather as a target. I mean, there was no concept really of a set green. And the greens really only started being maintained any different to the rest of the turf in the second half of the 1800s. And they were playing with feathery balls like the Reed family. Alexander Reid III remembers the feathery balls and the long-nosed woods that his parents had brought out from Scotland and he himself didn't know if it had been his father or his grandfather that brought them out so but either way it's the 1850s is the first written record or reference to them golfing at Ratho Farm. so golf then was a completely different game and I've got no doubt that quite a few of those tees and greens have wobbled around a whole heap over the last hundred years but you know it's the golfing ground you know the essence of early golf was it wasn't fixed form it was a landscape it was a golfing grounds you know and it was um, a bit the difference between a you know a a golfing field versus a golf course as in here's your course you know that's not how early golf was played it wasn't a course you played it was just a landscape that you enjoyed and it almost evolved every every single time you went out
0: do you still uh take some of those long-nosed woods and feathery balls out around the course
1: yeah, look, we haven't got – our golf museum, as you know well, they're so valuable now. So we've only got a replica of long nose that we play with, and we do get these very clever, um, you know, modern gutty balls that are made in Mexico that have – you know, you can just tell how hard it was to get gutty balls going. And our efforts at making a modern feathery, which is made with really tightly woven wool, is in a stuffed leather, you know, two strips of leather and sewed together a bit like a baseball. They I just don't believe they have the compaction of a, you know, of a traditional feathery. So they I don't believe the flight's all that relevant. So to be honest, we most of our hickory tournaments we let people play with baladas because it's a very soft ball. It, it, they obviously behave a bit differently around the greens, but in terms of how they fly and so on, I think there's a real relevance to um, to those early gutter balls because the gutty balls we're getting from Mexico are crazy expensive. So um, just balada's is fine.
0: Who, who's still making balada? Are these things hanging out in people's garages or, or is it? A- I,
1: I, I could know that it's actually um, a sports goods company in Mexico, someone from North America, from I believe like someone like Rand and Ranjeris or a lot of people in America would know exactly that company because we got a supply of about 80 or 100 of them through Oakhurst Links in West Virginia. And, you know, we've still got 20 or 25 of them left. So um, that's what we play with. If people say, I really want the raw experience, they dress up in plus fours and we, you know, and they pay, you know, uh, to enjoy those original clubs with the gutty ball, which is 1860s kind of era, but at least, they're, you know, they're made today.
0: All right, let's get to Barn Dance so Mm -hmm. you are the person who discovered the land right for golf Mm -hmm. yeah um it's now one of the best courses in the world right and and so how how does that I mean how do you feel how does that make you feel to hear that
1: oh man I mean I'm thrilled with what we achieved at Bamboo I mean you know I'm 23 and I'm just looking for a reason to stay back in Tasmania and not go back to I was working for an American golf management firm called Golf Solutions I was due to go back to America and I was just looking to sink my teeth into something to give me a reason to stay in Tasmania but also do it along what I wanted to do which was golf because I knew that Ratho Farm in its quirky charm was not going to suddenly create golf tourism in Tasmania and at that time Tasmania only had one 18-hole course so I pivoted a bit from focusing on Ratho to saying okay let's Build a great links golf course somewhere around Tasmania's coastline because we've got endless amounts of coastline, and and the real driver for that was sort of Cruden Bay and Dornock, where I realised like you don't have to be close to market if you're good enough, then you know people build it and they'll come. The old you know the old saying. So. Um, and obviously what helped immensely was seeing Mike open Bandit Dunes because that was a living, you know, proof of business case right in, and even though obviously America is a completely different market to Australia, Tasmania is actually a lot more accessible than Bandon, Oregon. So, um, you know, a lot, of, I was able to line up enough of the supporting evidence behind Bamboogle to actually, um, you know, put the right people together and get enough interest in it. And look, we had a lot of, slip ups like we were going to do it through foundation memberships and then because they were going to be tradable they got caught up in new national regulations around investment schemes and all this different stuff so it um you know it took a long while but in the end you know we got the job done and we got the right people behind it to you know i mean i fundamentally think the greatest thing i contributed to Boogle was pushing pushing hard for Getting you know Tom, choosing Tom pushing hard to keep Tom when we had a lot of interest from a lot of people with a lot of money who, who didn't want to stick with Tom um, and uh, and I just don't believe that we would have enjoyed the success it has if Tom hadn't built that first course on what is ultimately an inferior site to Lost Farm you know um, but a lot of people think it's still a better golf course so that's uh, that I'm grateful for what we achieved there in a big way
0: so. Paint the picture of a 23-year-old walking out there. You, you were familiar with the land? Like what was it about this land? Is this is this a place you drove by and you just couldn't not think about golf? Or was it was it the exact no, place? It's, what was it? It's kind of like a lot of great links landscapes. When you're
1: driving around them at the ground level, you sort of they just look a bit insipid or they look like it's one June. Um, and it's sort of not till you're in it or on top of it and in this case I went to this lookout up high because when you're fishing or water skiing on the bay there it just looks like one dune and so um, I was sort of more interested in our farmland we had a lot of dunes and I knew it well Um, but when I went up onto the this lookout at the top of Bridport and I looked down I was like holy moly that's like three lateral dunes and there's some real depth out there and in fact Up at Lost Farm, it's, you know, it's a kilometre wide of of dunes and it gets wider all the way. So that's where I thought, oh, I've got to see that and just see, you know, because some dunes are too choppy and quite busy and hard to really route golf holes through. Whereas Farm Boogles straight away, as soon as, you know, I finally got a hold of Richard and he finally, you know, we went out there together. I I mean, there's just golf holes everywhere. And it's quite... You know, it's quite mellow with its, um, t- I mean, it's severely dramatic, but there's a lot of very mellow valleys that, you know, wander their way through those, those dune lands. So, um, yeah, as soon as I was out there, I completely lost interest in my own, the dunes on my farm up there because that just wasn't as dramatic and um, also, you know, didn't have the water supply. So, yeah, so there's a lot of obvious reasons why I was immediately focused on it
0: uh what was the first conversation with richard sadler like the owner of the land well
1: um you i mean you've probably heard it, it took a richard was busy and easy he had a big farming operation and you know he, he it was just sounded like a fairly crazy idea so we um but thankfully you know he, he let me you know again another door that i knocked on i knocked on it quite a few times and we went and drove out there and it so, was So a was big, the
0: first conversation a short one
1: it, it was it was I think actually it was with his wife. And anyway, then then I did get a hold of Richard and he said, Oh, well, I'm up here and such and such. And we went out for a drive and I, and we just got talking about lynx golf. That was the first thing. is I remember showing um Richard a VHS tape of Royal Birkdale just to, you know, just and and a heap of books like Donald Steele's, you know, book on the Lynx lands and just heaps of big coffee table books with pictures so that you know, guy who's owned these dunes for like, oh, what did he, he'd owned them for 25 years at that time, but had never thought or no one had ever put to him that he had this world-class asset right there. Um, and so I had to convince him that this isn't that hard, but this is actually very believable. And then the, when you get people around that point, it's then, well, what's the business case look like? What are the numbers add up to? And, you know, how do we actually make it work? And I think that's where Richard and I, you know, we're a very good team because I had all the young, you know, enthusiastic energy, but also a pretty high golfing intellect. And Richard, it was a very experienced businessman and had been in tourism for a long time. And you know, he knew a lot about you know a lot of enterprises have had gone broke very quickly. So you know, it was all about really mitigating those risks and um, and and getting getting together and do, doing what we did. So it was great.
0: And. Luckily it did. I mean, as a golfer, luckily it did. Cause I, have not been myself. I've had friends that have uh, made the trip. New club is planning to make the trip uh, in the foreseeable future here. Um, Once now that we're back traveling, it it actually feels like it could happen. Uh, Yeah. But you know, folks have mentioned what great architecture, uh, but also the wind seems to be a point of conversation as it is at band and as it is in, 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 Mm in golf, but it feels like wind even plays even more a factor there what why, why does it uh, what is it about the wind there that makes it so memorable for folks
1: uh i think you know you i mean king island has two fantastic courses and they're a lot windier we early i mean i remember early days the number of guests that would come to bamboogle in our peak tourist season which thankfully is also the most the more still weather And they would kind of complain that they felt like they were in Queensland or the Caribbean. It was sunny. It was 28 degrees, which is, you know, hot by our standards. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but, um, and it was no wind. And we got a lot more complaints in those first few seasons of no wind, no Scottish, Irish rough weather. I haven't had to hit a low boring four iron under a wind that runs up a upslope to get by the pin. Like I'm just hitting these beautiful shots that sure. The ground was very firm and bump and run, but yeah. So Barnboogle gets very windy in the springtime. So sort of, you know, it can be August and it right through, it can actually even be January, but really October, November, December, are where you, you know, it can get pretty unpleasantly windy day after day, but you know, the rest of the year, nine months a year or eight months of the year, you know, it might get a windy afternoon. It might even get a windy day or two, but you know, it's not as anything like what I experienced in Scotland or, I'd be very interested actually in comparing Bally Bunyan and Lahinch. Hinch, the wind rose there against say King Island, because King Island, the two courses, they're absolutely magnificent layouts. And you, I, I mean, I think Kate Wiccan is probably the best golf course in Australia on a still day. Like this is the problem. So, um, it would be interesting to see if they're any windier actually than the west coast of ireland. or and i don't believe bandon is as windy as the west coast of ireland so but i haven't looked at it statistically
0: yeah. so yeah, yeah. That's a, there's another staff project for somebody to the math yeah math geeks can dive into those because i would be curious to see just really how different is it from different well you can get these you can get these
1: great wind roses matt and uh, i don't know if you've seen them but it shows the frequency and the velocity on a yearly basis and what direction it's coming from so and the other interesting with bamboo it's very it is a very consistent prevailing wind so for tom um it you know i think the genius of bamboo dunes is tom managed to build these fantastic short to medium length holes that even when it's howling wind instead of a the third and the fourth being short par fours and a flick wedge, or even you can drive the fourth, even when it's howling, you can hit, a driver and sort of a seven iron in there. And then all these long holes that downwind with, you know, with no wind at all, you might be hitting a three wood or a three iron into some of these long par fours or, or, um, or par fives. But then when it's howlingly windy, you know, they're very reachable and you can get an eight iron or, a, or even a nine in there. So I think part of the genius of Barnboogle um, is, is how Tom allowed for that wind. And then Lost Farm is very complementary to that because it plays to every point. So, Bambooga is very linear. It goes up into the wind and then it comes downwind and then it finishes with the last four holes back into the wind. Um, Lost Farm's nice because it goes to every point on the compass. It's much wider. It's, um, you know, it's sort of it, – it's more forgiving because it's wider, but actually it also has a lot more crosswind, you know, tee shots and, and approach shots. So, you know what it's like when it's windy – um, if you've got a str- howling crosswind, it's hard. You'd almost rather be into a straight into a wind and just know to keep it low. So it is, it's, I think they complement each other nicely.
0: Yeah, I, I remember reading something about that where um, he, he mentioned the course setup will be instrumental in terms of, of the wind because there's some long, long holes that are meant that way because they're going to be playing downwind. But if, it's, if the wind's not up that day, then you should, of you know, course, should know to put them forward. I feel like we don't yeah. do that enough, at least in the States. We don't, we don't uh, play around with course setup uh, dictated by not just conditions, but you know, if you're having a competition and you want to see something that it's a little different you know, we just don't, we don't make enough variety, I think out of the course setups.
1: Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Like they tried it at Torrey Pines. And I think you know, is it Mike Davis or whatever from the USGA, he kind of got crucified where they pushed up some teas and made them, you know, into really short fours or pulled them back and made them more the traditional mid-length hole. And, I mean, I think that makes complete sense. I don't – maybe the pros don't like it as much because it is a variation they're not used to. But ultimately, it's got to be more interesting. And it's um, it's also just a talking point for the game. So, um, anyway, I, 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 I 100% agree with you that golf is this fixed form. You know, it's a bit like, you know, your Robert Trent Jones, you know um, – you know, the Troy Trent Jones senior with this very fixed line of play, or even, you know, I think Donald Ross is quite an overrated architect because he never allowed the width, you know, it was very just prescribed to you. Here's here's your fairway and landing area. And here's your green. Whereas, you know, you look at the old McKenzie plans or even the old Tom Morris um, sketches, there was no actual line around a green or even a fairway. It was like, here's a, you know, here are multiple lines of play and there's hazards to avoid, but there's, basically um it's variety and you can you know you can do whatever you want with that golf field so anyway that's um that's it i agree that golf has become this fixture where rather than being a landscape that you find ways to play around and enjoy and mix
0: it up and if you think about it, our game the game of golf compared to all the others we're actually uh-huh. we're the only one that doesn't have the border well there's out of bounds but there's wide out of bounds you know it's not like a basketball court that has set dimensions and a 10-foot hoop or a football field that has exact you know uh, prescribed that you have to stay within we have these huge ballparks to in in use invention and and try things out and we don't try it (laughs) that's what drives me nuts
1: and it just kills creativity you know i mean that's why sevi never won a u.s open that wasn't it was built for guys who hit it straight and rather than people who were creative and hit crazy recovery shots, you know, cause it sort of kills the recovery shot is that kind of traditional historic U S open layout. But, um, it's, uh, I think golf, golf has a long way to go with reversible courses. I can't wait to get up to Michigan and play Tom's reversible course. And you know, you're just seeing a lot more like what you said with Sweeten's Cove that they're all playing in different directions. And you know, in Melbourne in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, there was a lot of cross-country golf where they played from Sandbelt course to Sandbelt course. You just pick your target, bunch of caddies after all the members are in drinking, you know, drinking their, you know, their their beers. But the caddies are out just having a wow of a time playing wherever they want out on the golf course and that's that's where you know i think the reversible course at st andrews the fact they only do that one day a year or maybe one weekend a year or whatever it is you know is actually a really big missed opportunity but but st andrews obviously has no problem attracting volume you know it's, it's got a problem with too much volume so it's other places that can hopefully pick up that mantle and say well how are we different and forest dunes has done it they've put in a reversible course so you know bang kudos to them
0: one of my all-time favorites. It is, it is I, I think for us here, mid, Midwest, it's as close as I've felt to the old course uh, in a mm-hmm. long time, playing, playing the loop mm-hmm. both directions. And uh, and with the retail golfer, you know, it, did, it, it still has its challenges. You know, folks don't kind of scratch their heads and maybe they don't want those interpretations of the line mm-hmm. of, of charm, you know, which is the spot that they want to be in, that they do want there to be a right and a wrong answer. I just know it's more fun deep down. I know it's I've played both forms of golf and I've shot scores and I've played shots. Uh, What we're talking about is just a more entertaining, long lasting, better impression of the game. Yeah.
1: And look, Tom. Tom has such an incredible gift with his team, with Brian Schneider and Brian Slonik and Eric and everyone. Like they're so good at their greens complexes. Like if you saw the Gunner Matter course that they've rebuilt at the national. So when you come down, Matt, I'm going to make sure you see all these places like, you know, why Kingston Heath is probably a more genius architectural achievement than Royal Melbourne because it's a flat, tiny property and it's, Oh, every bit as good as Royal Melbourne, except maybe for it doesn't have that land, that grand drama of Royal Melbourne. So we're going to go and look at all these. But if you look at Tom's new course at Gunna Matter at the National, which has, you know, it's got a Norman course. It's got a Trent Jones Jr. course. And they're, they're both really, really good. But you look at just what he did with great greens complexes and, and varied the routing on a few holes as well. Um, it is such a transformation where it was the least played and least affectionate course of these thousands of thousands of members. Now it's the busiest of all the courses just because of great greens complexes and, and also a better routing, but, and, and a better, I think considered golfing experience, but I I can believe what you're saying Forrest Junes, Tom's green's, like what he did at Bamboogle are just so much fun to chip and putt around and chipping and putting is 60% of the game of golf. So, you know, I'm very excited, you know, whenever I'm in Scotland at playing all those shots again, and it's something that Brian put into the restored holes at Ratho farm. I haven't played a lot of Gil Hance courses, but I can't, What something that is kind of cool is the first feature ever built by Gil Hance's son-in-law was he came down and worked at, ratho farm for a map maybe eight weeks and i gave him the the tractor and the blade and he built a few tees and, and bunkers and stuff and then we introduced him to people he got a job at at uh, Cabot Links, ended up working for one of Gill's team. Met Gill's daughter, and now he's married. You know, and they got a beautiful child. And and uh, I, I've got some great photos. The first ever feature he built on a golf course. You know, was at Ratho Farm, was our 15th tee. And um and I ha- and I'm looking forward to seeing more of Gill's work because he's getting so much, you know, plum, you know, contracts right now. I'll be interested to see if if they have the same um mesmerizing greens complexes that i find so you know so fascinating with tom's constructions
0: yeah yeah it's hard harder to get b- bored of a green that mm. you can play nine different ways you know mm. um, so what uh, <clears throat> out on barn Boogle, what uh, now after years of being a success and i'm sure in the early days it probably wasn't always guaranteed that it would be that Uh, Mm -hmm. what what are you most proud of for Barnaboo Lagoons? I think
1: that we navigated you know the capital raising um, you know in the face of you know some pretty compelling offers I won't name the companies or the designers but you know I I feel I have a very high level of integrity and I had an arrangement with Tom and Tom early on came down just for the flights and you know he risked he put his self on the line as well so we, um, you know, I'm glad we stuck to it and got a great golf architectural outcome. And and I think structurally the buildings at Bugle, you know, what we delivered there as a precinct is all very, very sympathetic to that golfing experience. Um, and also that a lot of the people we put on there, like we put on Tasmania's first, disabled apprentice greenkeeper, and he's still working there. And, you know, a lot of the staff that when we, we literally went around, when we were building the irrigation, we went into the pubs in Bridport and said, if anyone here can spell the word pipe, come and work for us and help us build an irrigation system. So, you know, I think there's still four of those guys that were on our original construction and greenkeeping team are still working there. So I love seeing them, you know, still, you know, enjoying that profession. And so, yeah, it's just the people we put together and, and it is such a magnet for Tasmania as a tourism draw card. So everyone is, you know, benefiting from that. So I get just a kick out of the enduring, you know, and even Richard now putting in the third course, the 14-hole Crenshaw core, you know, even he he, who's not a golfer and, you know, doesn't know much at all about the game, but at least he can see that that I brought the people around the project, you know, the Kaisers and Tom Doak and and the the Crenshaws. I mean, I lobbied really hard that if we had a chance to be the only Crenshaw core course in Australia, that would be something worth holding on to because I was privy to the fact that Bill had rejected an opportunity to collaborate on some designs in Australia just because Ben didn't love the traveling. And so, you know, I think lobbying hard to get them on that lost farm and the fact they've never done the third course, that's a nice little legacy as well.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Is it, I I remember when um, I was young, but I was still hanging out at country clubs and I remember (laughs) when Bandon was getting underway (laughs) And to a similar degree, you know, uh, Sand Valley or Streamsong or any of the the U.S. ones, where there was amongst like the golf heavy crowd, there was the um, cynicism about, well, how good is it going to be? I hear it's going to be open to the public. You know, it's another resort track. The the conditions won't be great. I and, and obviously it, it overcame all that cynicism and, and is now higher than so many well regarded mm-hmm. private clubs if you will mm-hmm. was was it a big deal for barn boogle to be publicly accessible when you st- when it was getting started or is it just not the same culture as kind of we have over here
1: um, that's a good question. So I think a lot of early resort golf in Australia was also concentrated up in Queensland and it was very much that Florida style. It was all, A lot of it was Japanese funded um, and it was attached to very glitzy high end hotels and brands. Um, so the weirdest thing for us was we were just proposing that we could build something in the coldest state in Australia and make an outdoor game an attraction in the colder state. You know, historically Tasmania has just been seen, and now Tasmania is a very premium destination. But at that time, no one really believed that people would travel. Um, but I think the question you're asking is: it was never a viable prospect to make Barn Google a private members club, even though I was initially funding it with private foundation members to get a built who would enjoy, you know, lifetime benefits and be able to pass that on or sell that membership. So no, I don't. Uh, but I, I certainly, I saw in America what you're talking about where there was a real snobbiness about public golf. Whereas now, like you say, my Kaiser has completely turned that on its head and now big, you know, big money is, is chasing that same model. And you can see that, you know, around the world, which is great.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There was always a, uh, you know, the, the, the prestige of a club or a course kind of tied to how few people could play it, you know, and and I I do start to see that, uh, dissipating, which is only good for golf. I mean, um, if it's publicly accessible, it's still hard to get to, but it it can be championship, you know, beyond the ideal of championship golf and closer to, um, just what's fun, you know, what's interesting, what's good. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Uh, you also have some other entrepreneurial ventures. So you mentioned some whiskey, you almost went off on a tangent with some whiskey terms that I I was, uh, my head was spinning. So where, when did you get into whiskey? You still, is this, this is beyond a hobby, right? Like you, you are, um, skilled in the, the art. Yeah. So we, um,
1: so when I was in St. Andrews, the two business plans I came back with were to build a great Lynx golf course. And, you know, on a, on, and there are so many different sites that we looked at that I hadn't really, you know, narrowed it onto Bam Google. Although once we got out there and Richard and I were able to, you know, strike up a, an arrangement, that became the focus. But um, the other one was to turn this beautiful old flour mill on the farm next door to our Rapho farm into a whiskey distillery just to try and really, you know, reinforce and build this um, – this uh, Gulf Highlands Scottish, you know, destination um, in Tasmania. So yeah, out of that, we restored the mill, um, a beautiful, beautiful property. um, And it's the oldest working flour mill making beautiful whiskey. And so out of that, I sort of started consulting on whiskey developments and golf developments. So, you know, that then, and then we got an opportunity to buy a really big whiskey asset in New Zealand. So Um, we, you know, we've owned that now for nearly 11 years. So I'm still the major shareholder and CEO of that. And we just commissioned our stills about like big stills, um, in Dunedin, which is right at the South end of, um, of New Zealand. And also, um, we leased and got a a planning permit and a crazy offer to sell a big project at Kingsbarns. So on the golf course there. So during, um, you know, during these formative years, I had both Bill Welter come out and help. And, um, and, and in Tasmania, and also another guy I used to caddy with at Kings Barnes, Dougie Clement. And Dougie and I did the Kings Kingsbarns Distillery together, and then you know we just had this amazing offer for our shareholders. We we had to sell it, and Doug Doug worked there till very recently, and it's um, it's a beautiful beautiful achievement as well. So, and yeah, help still helping a bunch of whiskey distilleries. It's a good space, you know, um, craft spirits and low mileage um, cons- consumption is a good thing. So instead of just concentrating whiskey in the world in Scotland and Kentucky and Tennessee there's now, you know, pop-up distilleries all over the world, which is beautiful. It's, um, it, you get a lot of different styles and a lot of different stories behind all the
0: whiskeys. I'm not familiar with that term, low mileage consumption. What does that mean?
1: Oh, people wanting to buy local, you know, oh, local right, yeah. food, lo- local beer, local wine. It's like, I don't want to, you know, yeah, it's just connecting with something where you can understand the provenance of it and the people behind it. So, I think,
0: yeah. I, I think that is, uh, oh man, it's so critical to, to a lot, like, just look at what's happening with COVID. So many small mm. businesses that have been, you know, busting their ass to to stay alive and keep moving. And I think people are, you know, starting to get a little burnout from ordering everything on Amazon and starting to go to our local businesses. And starting yeah. to, um, you know, I get that feel at a place like Journeyman, the distilleries that are local. That's good. that's neat. I've never really thought. What What do you think it is about uh, the distilleries and the whiskeys that have always been so closely married to golf?
1: Oh, I think it's just a demographic thing. Um, that you know, the, that middle-aged, you know, upper affluent man that was golfing. Um, you know, often whiskey was their drink of choice. It was a bit more expensive. There's a bit bit more uh, luster around it i mean that's all pretty boring and twee now but that's i think that's the historic connection but um now i mean the fastest growing whiskey drinkers are, are ladies and, and young people so and a lot more cocktails and you know all the big brands of whiskey brands now are chasing that cocktail mixer market which you know a lot of traditionalists think's very sad because they're releasing their whiskeys a lot younger they're much more spiritous and less mellow but if you're putting it in a manhattan or an old-fashioned you don't you know, it's, you don't need that, that age, aging over time, but it's, um, it's an exciting space to be in because people are moving, you know, bulk beer sales are down and even bulk cheap wine sales are down and, and people are spending a bit more and drinking a bit less and, and and savoring their, uh, their beverages, you know, a bit more, which is great.
0: It's a whole nother podcast to talk about golf and alcohol tied to, but, uh, I, I do want to see the correlation between a, a, a whiskey enthusiast and a walking golfer, because here in the States, we yes. have an epidemic with carts, you know, and it, oh, God, and, and uh, you can't fit, you know, a six pack in your bag that easily and still want to carry it. And so I, I have always noticed that my friends who are kind of um, whiskey enthusiasts that maybe have their little, uh, you know, swing yeah. bottle every once in a while, it they're always up for a walk which is good you know you could say the whiskey maybe is not the best for their health but the walk is good for their health so i want to see more whiskey enthusiasts that that carry their bag yeah i mean it's you know that cart question is something i don't know where it gets
1: answered i mean i can see now that um you're lucky if you can get by without them but what what i'm pushing pretty hard for it at our end is that, you know, we just have carts in the afternoon. So if people really refuse to walk, then they can play, but they got to play in the afternoon. And the people who really, traditionalists who hate the sight of carts because they're so ugly on a beautiful landscape or they hate the, how you know the flow of the game in a cart is really is quite different to walking um and the rhythm you know the rhythm of the round is so different and if you know but most golfs played in the morning so i know most people are going to end up walking but we're not saying to people who are maybe a bit less able or a little bit you know they've had a big day in the more in the afternoon and we can hopefully maximize a lot more afternoon golf just by making that the time that cart golfers can get out so but it is cart golf it is different and you know It breaks my heart when I do my trips over to help Oliphant golf and we're always in such a rush that, you know, wherever we're playing, you know, you do end up playing nine holes in a cart, maybe walking nine, you know, but just because you're getting from A to B, but I think it's actually a false economy. And if you're willing to really push yourself, walking is going to be quicker, particularly if you're shooting in the seventies, not in the nineties. So yeah.
0: Unless it's a very extreme site, which some of our courses have been built and Between housing and things of that nature but unless it is i i have done data on this we actually have put some trackers on on people before and seen on on a given course i won't name the course because we kind of lost the battle we were trying to forge but uh walking is quicker than carts and it's and more and more importantly it's a rhythm as you mentioned and the the cadence of you know not having to rush up weight rush up weight was was very clear in that data and uh i don't know I, I hope it changes i really do i think it's one of the underlining things with golf that is you know as alistair mckenzie said you know without designing the course as well people start quitting the game and they don't even know why i think yeah. are a huge reason people quit the game and they don't even know why it, you, yeah you wouldn't feel the same way if you walk nine holes versus ride i i just so yeah, and you actually have your feet on the earth, a more textural connection with the ground. And why don't you
1: why don't you do a little study with your listeners, Matt, of try and find in say ten different American cities two upper mid-range clubs, one that kept walking only versus one that embraced cart shack. And just see which one over a twenty or thirty year period actually retained membership. I mean, you can look at a lot of clubs around Chicago, for example. Is that where you're based? I'm sorry, I don't even know where that's you're right. based. No, yeah? That's
0: Chicago. Yeah. So,
1: so you know, you can look at a lot of clubs around Chicago that actually all have great, you know, narratives of 1920s and championships and classic era design and whatever. And I just wouldn't be surprised if if there is a correlation that clubs that held on to walking only policies held on to members better than the ones that, you know, because it's, you get an easy go or a Yamaha club car salesman and they sell you the profits you're going to make. So the only way of staying viable, but they don't talk to you about the cost of maintaining car parts. They don't talk to you about the ugliness of car parts and how it's only genius designers like, you know, Hansen. Doak and a lot of really who understand even how to hide car paths without you know bastardizing the edges of the golf holes and things like that so it would just be interesting if you've got some real analytical you know listener who wants to spend the time on looking at 10 10 cities with 10 similarly positioned golf clubs in the 1960s and how they're faring you know
0: i mm. I, I love it i that term i'm false economy is definitely comes to mind with that but um that's, that's another podcast too. So you always have something going on and I, and you mentioned it just briefly with Armand. Um, tell, tell us what you're working on next.
1: Uh, so I'm, I mean, Armin's, um is extraordinary. I mean, it is literally one of the greatest sites ever given over to the game of golf. I mean, and, and it's not just golf. It's like, you know, hundreds of acres of walking and cycle ways and fishing and picnicking and, And all of these activities that it's big enough, you can fit three courses on it, but, you know, always from the get-go, we wanted to put one course, allow for a multi-purpose public recreation space and and really show the world, again, like Kingsbarns had the, second busiest walking trail in Scotland, walking right along the coastline of it. St. Andrews, when I was there, those seven courses there have got like 45 kilometers of walking trails all through the golf courses. And it's like dog walking and picnicking and you can do all of that. And golf doesn't have to be, a fences up exclusive gated community, you know, golf really, in fact, I think any club now that's wondering about how it's trading doesn't have a dog walking membership where you can just literally let people enjoy your landscape um, and pay a fee. And you've got to, sure, you've got to induct them. Like this is, you've got to look out for golfers. You've got to be self-aware, but ultimately a common sense and a common courtesy always evolves between non-golfers and golfers. And um, we're all out enjoying the great outdoors. So, I mean, if, um, you know, if your listeners want to look online, the website's got a heap of great, you know, visuals and, and, um, and flyovers and it's, um, you know, it's like a peninsula and it's like an island floating in the middle of Derwent Harbour with these giant mountains, you know, Mount Wellington and Mount Nelson and, um, you know, the Hobart Harbour is a spectacular landform and this feels to me like the real anchor point of the harbour and it's, and it's all sand except for the very northern sort of quarter of the site, um, it's sandy dunes it's beautiful rolling and then there's some cliffs you know some i mean amazing drama all the way around and it's sort of like you know i've been lucky enough to play at pebble a bunch of times and it's like pebble but with water on both sides not just that monterey coastline on one side and then the higher ground you know inland it's literally wrapped around by water so you know we've it's been a slow burn we got a really good lease from the government like you know it's a it's a long-term public Private partnership to restore this very degraded, eroded landform into a very vibrant and viable, you know, environmental um, turnaround story. So um, we've started on site, it's all mown out. We've started with a lot of the maintenance facilities. We've got to get our water across. And once that water is across, we can start the major um, construction. And it's yeah it's i can't wait for more people to see it we're, we're lying pretty low on it until we physically have the water there um because we can't physically start the major you know commencement until we do so yeah
0: i prior to chat with you went to the website and saw those visuals and it is uh stunning if if you're listening go check it out um this place was meant for golf and everybody mm. it was uh a little bit remind me of Old Head. I spent a lot of time in Southern Ireland mm-hmm. at Cork. And, oh, really? Wow. Cork College, yep. yep. Yeah. And so I got out to Old Head quite a few times. Now, uh, in, the, in the center, though, there wasn't a lot of land movement, right, on the peninsula. You, you, it yeah. really does get tight out there, but it's, it's flat for the most part in, in the holes in the middle. Um, oh they moved a lot of dirt around uh, for, for that one yeah but what this looks like is it has like that dooney rolling terrain mm. on mm. a peninsula with the same epic views 360 yeah. all around you i mean i, I can't I, it just looks like uh like otherworldly
1: yeah it is and and actually also from a business case it's literally only 20 minutes by ferry and we want that to be a real whole market experience as you're on this zippy little ferry back into salamanca which is you know the second oldest city in australia beautiful waterfront so as a business it's 25 minutes from hobart airport that's you know really connected to melbourne and sydney and brisbane and so it that all stacks up but what's what i can't wait to see is you know 200 caddies i know we're going to get a lot more non-golfers using that site than golfers so that's exciting to show how you know safely integrated that can all be. Um, and you know, I think it'll be a real hallmark of community and environmental services by the game of golf. So, you know, that's um, uh, and and ultimately, I think I think people are going to come all from all around the world because there's just you know, there's very little like it. Old head, I looked at a lot early and you know, I, I saw that as spectacular it was, it perhaps just wasn't natural golfing grounds, So that's, um, that's. I, I show everyone the old head pictures and they will go, oh, wow, you like old head. But then I'm able to say, yeah, but, but these are sort of, these are a few little advantages we've got over old head. So yeah. Yeah, yeah
0: and the uh, integrated walking paths. I think stuff like that, we, we need examples of. Um, mm-hmm. I know here, the places that have attempted it uh, have failed because they don't have mm-hmm. accessors that actually... You know, prove that hey look people aren't getting hit by golf balls walking their dog hey people aren't getting stung by bees that are being planted for these you know ecosystem yeah. pollinators uh habitats yeah. and, and 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 we need whether they're in australia or they're in scotland or they're in san diego we just need them uh because yeah. for for the, the muni in chicago to get it done they're gonna have to point to somewhere so i'm, I'm looking to you Greg.
1: Well, you know, I, so when I first went to the Tasmanian government and said, and you know, I had a lot of runs on the board with bamboo and everything. And I said, look, this site, you know, it's, it's managed by parks and wildlife. The government has bought it because it's so degraded and they don't want it just turned into real estate. Cause it's such an anchor point visually in the middle of the Harbor. Um, I said, you know, Here's Highland Links in Nova Scotia, owned by Parks Canada. Here's Torrey Pines, owned by um, the Municipality of San Diego or San Diego Parks, I can't remember the entity. Here's, you know... um, um, St. Andrews, obviously, you know, owned by the you know municipal government there, and and they're like, no, nah, we don't want to do golf Greg. because I was trying to say, like, you could have a real economic asset here, um, and this is how you do it, and they're like, no, no, we'll just lease it to you. We don't do it. We actually haven't even got a management plan for what we're going to do with it. So you, why don't you go off and come up with some ideas? So, so that was the genesis of it. But it, the other point you picked on there that's interesting to me is, like, I. We, I do, I help a lot of clubs in the Midwest. You know, mainly Wisconsin and Illinois. And I look at Freeport. Um, I don't know if you know Freeport. You know, west of Chicago. It's a town of I don't know sixty or eighty thousand. The country club there was built in the in the fifties. It's got a long history. But they closed their tennis court. They closed their pool because they weren't making money. They wanted to be golf. But their members started dwindling, and you know, and 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 it is a bit of a basket case. A lot of these clubs. It's like Stevens Point up in Wisconsin. They closed their ice skating rink and it's like are you you know but actually i think the return to the country club where you need to be more than just golf it's like can you but you got to put the same time in how do you make your tennis courts stack up how do you Get walking trails and nature and wildlife bird watching. You know, bird watching is a really fast-growing hobby. So, how do we get these people enjoying our property, paying us a couple of hundred dollars a year to be a member? And actually, you know what? They might even pick up a golf club and start the game. Or so the game of golf has to be more inclusive. And, and actually, the more exclusive it is, except in very big metropolitan areas or absolute wow factor destinations, game g- golf just in every part of its makeup cannot be exclusive except in very, very narrow situations. Like, you know, you and I know them, but other than that, it has to say, I've got 200 acres of land here and I got to find a way of it, of it justifying itself because a lot of public courses in downtown cities in Australia, I'm sure it's the same in America, are getting closed now because the non-golfers are saying, You got a hundred acres that could be for walking and picnicking and, you know, and we could all enjoy that rather than just the golfers banging their golf balls around. So golf has got to get savvy.
0: Yeah. Wow. The, the, the times that a more inclusive uh, experience took away from the golfer, you know, it's so few and far between. I I, I can't, I I always challenge the people that say, uh, you know, we got to protect the exclusiveness because that's our, that's our selling point. That's our value. Um, Mm. it's it you're standing on thin ice is what I think if if exclusivity is our only thing that's all that we have in golf and I think we have more and and the realization that uh, I needed to be sold on it too I had to go to Scotland I had to go to Ireland I had to see the places that had that inclusivity and I realized as a golfer I'm not my experience isn't being you know deterred at all I'm still having the great time probably a better time now because you know there's there's more activity. There's things that are going on. And, and it's, that, yeah. uh, I forget how you described it. I'm going to, I'm gonna have to re-listen, but that courtesy, <laughs> that common courtesy just, just evolves. It generally, yeah. it generally just happens.
1: Well, it, it's common sense and common courtesy. And I say it a lot because, you know, golf has a danger element because you're banging a little missile, you know, two or 300 meters. But really, if you look ahead and people's eyes are up and you know where to stop and look, then it, you know, it flows pretty well. But you know, they, that other exclusivity issue is, is juniors. Like even today, I see a club, you know, I remember Royal Hobart here and, you know, a bunch of other clubs here and, you know, these clubs have got to get young people to embrace. But in fact, you still see the silver haired aged old members who don't like beginners and they don't, some of them don't like women golfers. And they, they, they just have this peculiar, almost in, insecurity that, unless it's me and my ilk, um, this place is going backwards. When in fact, if they've got to be taken by management and by the golf pro and by everyone to say, guys, we're all going to be broke in 20 years unless we bring through the next generation of golfers. And that's again, West Scotland does such a great job of it. And I think actually Australia probably does a pretty good job of it in a lot of places, particularly in country golf. If you look at all so many of Australia's great golfers like Mark Leishman and so many of these guys are all from country towns where golf is actually a very inclusive part of the fabric of that township. Um, whereas in big cities, it, it doesn't seem always to be quite the same. There's more stratified private members and municipal and daily fee and, you know, uh, and driving ranges. <laughs> and, and that's uh, and, and it's such a stratified, you know, segmented golf, golf landscape.
0: I, I had a really <laughs> long conversation about that, that uh, distinction between the folks that really think if we don't protect our elk and we don't protect the folks that, you know, make our club or our course what it is um it's all going to go away There's so mm. they're, they are there's a fear element of those beginners uh, a lot of that are female there's this fear that you know everything is going to change everything's going to be mm. USB mm. port you know in carts and it's going to be music on the golf course and mm. every driver has to be pink you know and and I, I if you talk to any of those beginners yeah sometimes they are brought to the game by music that on the course yeah. they can relax or they can have a drink or they a lot yeah. of them are but there is a transition point where they become actual golfers and yeah. th- if you ask any of them what it is about it, it's uh-huh. the same answers that you know the old white-haired guy, the same reasons that he fell in love with golf. it's the exact same. And I think that's yeah. what they, that people miss. People are missing that that uh, conversion point that wow yeah. are, they are me. We are the same. Yeah. you know they would like to walk outside, they like to compete in this game they they no longer can you know play their other sports like football or basketball or whatever it was that this is their outlet it's the same reasons it's just so hard to see when they're beginners
1: but actually you know what for those old silver head members and if they oh it's going to change too much it's like well you know what they'll enjoy it because i've seen so many clubs that actually embrace these more liberal you know Policies and they go. Wow, this is much more exciting here. There's energy here. There's everyone's having a lot more fun because there's a more diverse bunch of people enjoying this property. So, um yeah, I, I don't know. You'll never convince some people of that. And sadly, I've helped a lot of clubs that it's only when you hit rock bottom and you're bankrupt that you realise you've got to reinvent. You know, reinvent your future, and that actually means swinging open the doors and letting letting anyone that wants to walk in and give you some money. You got to find a way of making that work. So, yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. Oh, well, that's, that's another, man, I could have another hour with you on just industry specific, but I have one last thing for you. One last thing. So this season we're doing something we're calling the 19th soul. Um, It's adapted questions from the French novelist, Marcel Proust, uh, Uh was trying to get to the truest nature of a human being. We're we're not doing that. We're just trying to find out what type of golfer Greg Ramsey is. So
1: Mm -hmm. uh,
0: 18 questions. Uh-huh. They're supposed to be short answer. A lot of them you could you could do philosophical responses for forty five minutes if you wanted. Quick answer, first thing that comes to your mind. Eighteen questions. Greg, are you ready? Yes. First tee shot. When were you happiest as a golfer? Um.
1: Probably when I took a bunch of my friends to the old course in St. Andrews who came to our big first fundraising event for the Kingsbarns Distillery. And I was able to host them at the New Club and the RNA and a bunch of Australians who probably would never have had the chance to do something like that. And, and then, um, yeah, that, that, that was joyful, very joyful.
0: Greg, what's the scariest shot in golf?
1: Um, the second shot into the third hole at Barn Dunes, Dunes, everything about that is just daunting because you know you should get it close.
0: So describe it for us.
1: Oh, it's genius, this green. I mean, it's one of the few greens Brian Schneider and Tom Dyke didn't agree on, but as in, you know, it's it's brilliant how it's ended up, but they had a different view of how to how to put it together. But uh, it's got a short left bunker. Um, it's got a long, um, a, a long right bunker, and then it all falls away from you and everything at the front, where you want to land the ball is just feeding off and sort of feeding away from getting in this middle little Valley that then feeds to the back of the green, where the pin is invariably cut. So, uh, and you just know that so often the wind is a bit more than you think it is up there than when you're standing down the fairway. So you got to really, uh, it's genius. And it's like an only an 85 feet, 85 yard shot.
0: Number three, I always like, this is an interesting response when we ask internationally, what is your go to order at the halfway house?
1: Uh, beers, just for the second nine. I always like to pack a few extra beers and meat pie. In Australia, we love meat pies. So, and we have a saveloy. I don't know if you eat saveloys, but they're like a, a curved, bendy hot dog, and um, but they're in a semicircle. So I love them.
0: I, I had a bad run in with a hot dog when I was five years old in Australia, mm-hmm. I was in Sydney. And yeah. never, I so I'm out on hot dogs altogether. It was a horrific Fair enough. Uh, experience. <laughs> good. Number four, what a trait do you most deplore in your own golf game?
1: I am not a good iron player. I have, because I don't like, you know, I don't actually like taking divots. I, and I love catching it thin from when I was in Scotland, you know, hitting low little runners. But when I get back on a course where I know I got to punch down and through the ball, I'm just not a great iron player. I don't like to, Create that damage to the land you know to the to the land so
0: you're a conservationist <laughs> yes yes uh, number five what quality do you most look for in a playing partner
1: Com- uh, conversation yeah i mean i'm probably one of those irritating golf partners who just likes to have a chat all the way around whether it's politics whether it's golf whether it's you know girls whatever it is just like yeah that's it
0: number six what is the trait you most deplore in other people's golf games
1: just a person who will not play in anything but a golf cart like that's i just i I just want to i just want to i mean i just look at them and i don't play with them much anymore so that's good
0: you showed restraint in our golf cart conversation kudos yeah uh seven what words or phrases do you most overuse on the golf course um
1: uh I'll, um, I'll take that any day. Like, you know, you've trying to feel good about a shot and you sort of say, Oh, I'd take that shot any day, even though, you know, you've hit it. But if he ends up safe, I have a good habit of hitting a lot of misses that still keep me in play. So, yeah.
0: What golfing talent do you most want to have?
1: Really, I'd just love to be a great short iron player because I am a it's pretty good long, you know, it's the Colin same problem. Kawa I can hit
0: is your yeah.
1: I, I just want I want to stiff more nine irons by the pin. And I, I'll hit them over the green or short and I'm I'm probably gonna hit a four iron closer than a wedge. So
0: you're you're gonna have to take more dirt, I'm afraid. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. That's it.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: number nine, what is your most treasured golf possession?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I've been putting with my grand's putter for the last year and a half. And it I, I really helps me because I can think of the way she, she had really wrinkly skin. And she had this purse that I was fascinated by, just covered in sequins. And, and whenever I know I want to make a putt, I just think of her. And she was a famously good putter. And I just think of her and how much, oh, you know, just those amazing childhood memories. She was the first person to really encourage me and my brother to get into golf. So, um, yeah, that, that I love that. I love playing with that putter.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful.
1: It's a terrible old 1950s bullseye putter, Gary Player bullseye putter, and it's got no sweet spot at all. But you know what? I've never putted. I just put it out of the skin. It's great. I, I've never putted you,
0: so well. I thought you were going to say those sequins were also on the putter. They yeah, didn't kind of I should sure. liven it
1: up. I should. Yeah.
0: Uh, making the turn. What's the one thing in your golf bag you should throw out?
1: Um, I had this idea of putting all my tees and ball markers and, you know, all these precious ones in a little bag inside my golf bag. And I can never find anything when I need it. I should definitely throw that mini bag out and go back to the old st- style, just having it all in a pocket.
0: It's a good one. Uh, what is your favorite occupation at the golf course?
1: Oh, definitely, barman. Oh, well, actually, sorry. I loved caddying. I mean, I loved caddying. I loved the people you meet. I still keep in touch with probably forty or fifty people in America that I caddied for at Kings Kingsbarns or at St Andrews. Um, so I lo- and I love sharing the knowledge of the whole. and I feel like some of the soothing language I used over their putts or over their clutch shots actually you know might have helped to get good results and i mean the tips i earned were just outrageous tips so i loved that i loved it you
0: you Mm -hmm. might forget a good barman you never forget a good caddy that's
1: a very that's exactly it yeah so matt you validated my own selection
0: i i know them all by name the good ones Um, yeah have you ever asked another golfer for their autograph
1: yes yes i when i was in st andrews both in 95 and 2000 it was the year of the Open, and everyone stayed at the Old Course Hotel. Um, I mean, one of the great privileges for me, this is a segue, is I was private bar- barman at IMG Mark McCormick's farewell dinner to Arnold Palmer. And there were only 16 people invited to that. And I'm standing in the corner with the big three, you know, Nicholas Player, Arnie. Um, some of the stories that were told, some of the insight into Arnie as a man was just incredible. And that was the one time I thought, Oh, imagine if I was crass enough to actually ask them at the end of this dinner for an autograph. I didn't, but I got plenty of others that week. And I, I don't do it now, but when I was 18, I, was, I thought everyone had a right to ask these guys for an autograph. So
0: that's pretty cool. What, what was the, uh, who was the, um, the one you remember most from the autographs or your favorite that you got that week?
1: Oh, John Daly, after he just beat Constantino Rocca in the playoff, he came in and he, he, he was, he was in the hotel all week. It was a really interesting week. I mean, I can tell you some stories like it was the week that we first got heads up that Nick Faldo was being followed by, you know, the media for maybe, you know, having some friends in America. Um, um, I mean, some punch-ons in the, in the um, bar between some players, some, I mean, some really interesting stuff, but, um, getting John Daly's the first person as he walked in and I'd been looking after him all week and he knew me by name, although he often called me Jeff. It was Jeff, 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 you know, it was Greg and, and, uh, he was great. So that was, I I was actually pretty thrilled with that win. I was going for Michael Campbell, but, um, it was good. It was good. That's,
0: Mm. uh, I got, I got some John Daly stories that I've heard on this podcast actually about that week. So I bet you, you have your own, um, Mm. Number 13, what historical golf figure do you most relate to? Oh,
1: um, you know, I really like Bobby Jones's letter to McKenzie about what he wanted, you know, Augusta to stand for. I just thought that had so many elements in it that I just like, he got it. You know, he got it in a way that, you know, I think when Tom Doe came out in the 80s, people, you know, he had, a, he just looked at the game back in his very old, you know, a throwback way of keeping it natural. Spending the time on the routing. So, I would say, oh, I mean, I'm no Bobby Jones, but um, I don't know someone. Ah, who knows, Alison McKenzie. I don't mind. I don't mind ripping it up either, and and just doing something for a controversy. Because at least people remember something. You know, you don't want to be too safe down the middle.
0: I. That's that's a good one. Uh, do you have any golf regrets? Um. Yeah, there's
1: there's there's probably quite a few. There's a few projects which I feel I wish I'd gone harder at that really I probably felt I got my hands full, I won't have a go at that, I don't need to, you know, put that time into that or, you know, so yeah, that, that's that. I mean, I wish we'd handled things obviously a lot differently with how we both established and founded Barn Boogle, but also how we dealt with the, you know, the separation of the investors and, you know, cause that obviously, you know, all ended, you know, in a way that it didn't deserve to considering the great success that we'd achieved in actually building and putting it on the ground. Um, Yeah. I, so the answer is yes, I have some regrets, but I can't, you know, none of them actually would I, do I worry about and never, it's only when you ask, it pops into my head.
0: So. <laughs> good, good. Don't worry yeah. about it. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Your favorite golf book or movie? Um,
1: I would say, the Spirit of St. Andrews by, for reading, I would say The Spirit of St. I got sent that when I was 17 when Sleeping Bear Press first put it out and it really turned me on for St. Andrews. And then, but you know what, I love Donald Steele's, um, the classic Linkslands of Great Britain and Ireland, you know that one? And then I've got to say, I still go back to my Jeffrey Cornish and Ron Winton, you know, the golf course. That is my uncle gave me that even before I think I was getting into golf, maybe when I was 15. And I still just love the pictures of that. In fact, that preempted the sandhills in Nebraska. It's got a photo of this blown out, you know, sand hole in Nebraska saying these are America's traditional links
0: lands. So yeah, I love that book. That's a good list. All those should be added to to people's reading list. Um, Number sixteen. What is your least favorite hole in all of golf?
1: There's so many at Pebble Beach. I just think that is, except for its magic moments, there's just so much mediocre stuff there. Um, that don't need to be. They don't yeah. need to be mediocre. Is what I'm saying. Like they just, they couldn't. They almost couldn't build them as bad as they have some of them. Um, uh, my least favorite hole. Ah. Uh, I probably just love being out there. Some, okay. Some do irritate me around Royal Hobart as well. They just couldn't be worse than they are on that spot of beautiful Sandy
0: rolling links land. Yeah. There's always a personal connection for that question that I find people go to their home course for that one. Yeah. Um, Number 17 pre question. Do you enjoy music on or around the golf course?
1: You know, I never have played much music while I've been playing because, yeah, as I said, a lot of conversations. So, but I love music. I listen to a lot of music. So, yeah.
0: Uh, I'll ask the question, anyways. If you had one, one song to listen to for the rest of your life on the golf course, what is it? Um, the Cure Pictures of You.
1: Yeah, it always takes me somewhere. It takes me somewhere different every time I listen to it. I just it takes me somewhere different, so I could just keep listening. Yeah,
0: great answer uh, for my preference. Uh, Music subjective, as is golf. So yeah, yeah. Might think yeah. that answer stinks. I think it's a good one. Uh, Eighteen. The final question: If you have a motto, maybe you do. What is it? Um,
1: never be afraid of asking the question or opening the door. Like that'd be it.
0: That's what I'm taking from this conversation is I'm going to start asking a lot more questions that are bouncing around up here. Greg, it was really awesome uh, connecting with you and, and being able to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much.
1: Oh, no, it's great, Matt. Thank you. We'll uh, look forward to talking again soon.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you are not a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter or Instagram, we're at New Club Golf. This episode was produced by Mark Callwell with research assistance by Jim Satar. The backdrop is supported by members of New Club Golf Society and our official partners. Journeyman Distillery is the official partner of this year's Summer Medal at Sand Valley and Lasonia. Golf and whiskey go together like well, the perfect twosome. My favorite is their Silver Cross. It's a name that hails from the medal given out at the early days of the British Open. This medal would later come to symbolize friendship, tradition, camaraderie, and spirited competition. In that same spirit, Journeyman has created a tradition they call Four Grains for Golf, donating 1% of all sales from Silver Cross whiskey back to the various golf charities and organizations that teach kids the game of golf. It instills in them its core values. Kids play free on Welter Folley's 30,000 square foot real grass putting green, not kidding, it's huge, modeled after Himalayas putting course in St. Andrews, Scotland. Journeyman has been distilling artisan spirits for a decade in their historic feather bone factory located in the one stoplight town of Three Oaks, Michigan. They are grain to bottle, produce certified organic, kosher, and gluten-free award-winning whiskeys and you can check out their full portfolio of spirits at journeymandistillery.com